Welcome to the HPG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, welcome back to our New Testament overview. We're getting toward the end of the New Testament now, and for the most part, up to this point, the letters that we've gone over have been named by who they're written to. And at this point, we are shifting gears to talk about the general letters that are named instead by who wrote them. Um, Sometimes that can be a little confusing as you're getting introduced to the New Testament that Philemon was written to Philemon, but James was written by James. Right. And... um, We'll talk about the audience in just a minute. But uh, as we get toward the end of the New Testament, those letters are grouped together. Um, So it's kind of helpful that from James through Jude, all of those are named uh, by who wrote them. And as you read the book of James, this will become apparent today. It is just a little bit of a different flavor than the rest of the New Testament books. Um, It's very practical, down-to-earth wisdom that apply across all generations. And so it is a fun read. It's a real easy read. Get through the five chapters really quickly. So it'll be a fun book to talk about today. Yeah. So just a couple of background things before we get into the text, um, which we did a whole um, season on the book of James. You go back, season five, Mm -hmm. uh, you can go back and listen to a full walkthrough. We'll just do the whole letter in one go today. Uh, But if you want more detail, you can go back and listen to season five. Um, But by way of introduction, uh, okay, which James? There are several different James. Jameses? Yeah, I guess that would be the right, the plural James of one I. James. Uh, uh, there are several different guys named James in the New Testament. Uh, probably the most famous is James, the son of Zebedee, yep. uh, one of the 12 apostles, one of the first four guys that yep. Jesus called. Brother of John. Mm-hmm. And this, I mean, technically could be that guy, but likely not because he dies in Acts chapter 12. Yep. Herod has him executed with a sword. Um, and so it may be less likely that it's that James. Um, it could be there's another apostle of the Twelve named James, the son of Alphaeus. We know almost nothing about him right. outside of that he was one of the Twelve and was there for uh, those parts of the ministry of Jesus and the book of Acts. Um, but there's a third candidate that most people think is probably the one writing, and that is James we guess I say that the half brother of Jesus, um, so son of Joseph and Mary, yeah, and he it's it's really interesting kind of looking at his life because he grew up and we know that the brothers of Jesus did not believe in him, right? John chapter seven, and we know one of them was named James, Mark six, Matthew thirteen, mm-hmm. named them specifically. One of them is James. That's right, and we know that this James, the brother of Jesus, goes on to become a really prominent figure in the Jerusalem church. Um, in the book of Acts. And we know from Galatians 1 um, that this is the Lord's brother. When Paul says, I didn't see any other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Um, So it's really interesting to see the connection here. And one particular thing that's interesting about that is uh, James is prominent in Acts chapter 15 when there's the whole discussion about the Gentiles and uh, salvation there. There's a little letter that's written to the church in Antioch. And there's a similarity between that little letter and the letter of James, and that is that the only greeting at the beginning is simply the word greetings. Yes. That's true of the little Antioch letter 
and it's true of the letter of James. And so not sure exactly if this is the same James writing. He may have had a hand in the introduction in both of those. I'm not sure. Which, by the way, is just a fun Bible, fun Bible trivia point. Um, what is the shortest letter in the New Testament? That one little letter you're talking about in Acts 15. It's the letter to Antioch yeah. in Acts 15. So technically it is the shortest, yeah. though it is not its own separate uh, letter. Yeah. Yeah, so that kind of leads us into talking about who the audience is. It's apparently a Jewish audience. Um, he will talk about synagogue at one point, and so obviously Jewish people would have been familiar with what that was. Yeah, in chapter 2, verse 2, when it says, if someone wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, the word there is not uh, the word for uh, church that we see other places in the New Testament, ecclesia. It's the word synagogue, um, yeah. so that's kind of interesting. Yeah, and it's also apparent that several of these brethren, and this is true in a lot of the New Testament letters, but several of these brethren are poor. There are several references to the poor and how they're treated by the rich, but also in turn how the poor should treat the rich um, and how they should treat fellow poor people. And so that's a kind of recurring theme throughout the entire letter uh, that I really hadn't noticed until recently, which is kind of cool to see. Yes. So uh, there's some really cool themes in the book of James. What's interesting is sometimes uh, people point out that James doesn't ever mention Jesus or his death or, you know, resurrection. So, like, how is this a Christian letter? Well, if you go compare James to the teachings of Jesus, man, there are just so many connections. Yes, specifically with a, with a mind toward the Sermon on the Mount. Yes. You see a lot of comparisons. Really, really fascinating. So even though it does not mention Jesus' name, the teachings of Jesus are all over this book, um, clearly influenced by his brother, uh, Jesus. And, of course, chapter 1, verse 1 does say, James, a bondservant of God and of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, good point. So yeah. it does mention him at the beginning. Yeah. As a servant of Jesus, which is really interesting, thinking about him being his exactly physical brother, half yeah, brother. It's very fascinating. Um, the other really interesting thing is sometimes James is called the Book of Proverbs of the New Testament, and uh, that there's a lot of similarities, uh, short sayings that have to do with uh, wisdom, and um, just very very practical. Uh, so really, it is kind of like this toolbox. Um, it's a little harder to outline James just because it's these lots of little sections that kind of stand on their own, kind of like the Proverbs do, um, but really, really helpful, practical book. Um, so without further ado, we'll, we'll try to divide this up uh, as best we can. Uh, James uh, introduces himself, like you mentioned, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Uh, you know, we talked about the audience uh, 12 tribes in the dispersion may be specifically Jews. It may also be a, another way of talking about Christians in general. We know that First Peter is written to the elect exiles in the dispersion. And as you think about just the 12 tribes generally being all of Israel, kind of the same idea right. with all, all of God's Christians. people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So whether it's literal or figurative, either way, um, we get the idea of God's people. This is a general letter. It's not written to a specific church or a specific individual. It's written to God's people at large. And man, he comes out swinging. Uh, right at the beginning, the theme of suffering comes up. Uh, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
And so the first chunk of James, as we've divided it up kind of into eight sections, uh, lots of other ways to do that. But uh, chapter one, verses one through eight, or verses two through eighteen, I guess technically, um, is going to be really about suffering, largely uh, st- being steadfast under trial. He's going to talk about different kinds of trials. He'll also talk about wisdom in trial, and so there's nothing more universal than suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is going to affect everybody in some way at some point, and kind of throughout our lives. Um, and it's especially going to affect the Christian. That cannot be avoided. And there, there is a lot to be said about when you become a Christian, things in some ways get a lot more harder and more difficult. And James encourages us to see those as opportunities to grow. And to also make sure our attitude it does an attitude check for us in regard to how we think of God in the moment of suffering. Mm-hmm. He'll say, let no one say when he is tempted, this is verse 13, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So James makes it clear that God is not the one just sitting back or sitting up there in heaven going, I can't wait to throw this in front of Chase and make him stumble. That is not at all how we should view God during trials. But we are tempted by the things that each of us individually struggle with. It might look different for me uh, to you. But God delivers us all the same through those trials if we put our trust in him. Mm-hmm. And so our attitude toward God and suffering is really, really important because un- unfortunately a lot of people, they start to blame God in those moments. James tells us very clearly that's not the way to go. That's right. And so this teaching on suffering is paired with some teaching on prayer and specifically asking for wisdom. And James says you need to be whole-minded. <laughs> you can't be double-minded in this um, that we need to ask in faith, trusting that God will help us when we suffer, trusting that God will give us the wisdom we need to get through whatever it is. And it's kind of interesting that this is going to come back at the end of the letter in chapter 5 where he talks about patience and prayer and the effective prayer of a righteous man. So suffering and prayer are going to be kind of the bookends of this letter of James. The end of chapter 1, verses 19 through 27, again, is a very practical section that focuses on being doers of the word and not just people who hear the word, uh, which is very similar to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, whoever hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And uh, so James has no time for hypocrites. There's going to be so many times in this letter where he doesn't pull any punches. He's like, come on, guys. (laughs) Um you can't act like this. It should not be this way. And one of these times is here where he talks about um, true and undefiled religion. If you say you're religious, but you don't bridle your tongue, um, your religion's worthless. Pure and undefiled religion is uh, visiting orphans and widows and keeping yourself unstained from the world. Uh, Jesus' kingdom is not about a bunch of talk. It is about living it. And so James... Uh, really brings the hammer down here. Uh, and he'll talk another big theme in this letter as we'll go throughout is your, the tongue. Like how we use our words mm-hmm. is really big. So that leads us into chapter 2, which is about the the sin of partiality. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1 begins with, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And James begins to paint this picture for them of someone 
kind of coming into their assembly or synagogue like we were talking about, their, their church assembly. The brethren are gathered together. And he paints this picture of there being a very rich man who comes in with a gold ring and he's dressed up real nice. And then there's a guy that comes in with poor, uh, poor and dirty clothes on. And these brethren will sit the rich guy in the nicest seat in the assembly. But the poor guy, they'll say, you stand over there or, you know, you come sit down by my foot. You know, you, they treat him in a horrible way. And James makes it very clear to them that that is sinful. Uh, he calls it partiality in verse 9. If you show partiality, you were committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You cannot do that. You, you cannot treat someone differently solely based off of their outward circumstances. And I think this principle truly applies in multiple situations just outside of rich and poor. To them, that was very much so one of the dividing lines. But another dividing line for them would have been Jew and Gentile relationships, um, possibly Roman versus non-Roman, you know, th that kind of thing. And with us today, we cannot stand for racism like that. We, we cannot stand for treating someone differently solely based off of how they look or because they look differently from us. James calls that sinful. But the correction he gives in verse 8 is if, however, you're fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. That's, that's how we're supposed to be treating one another, just as Jesus had commanded us to do. Um, and so this is a really cool section if you've never read it before. It gives a lot of good instruction. Yeah, just how to work together with people because we do it with race, we do it with gender, we do it with, uh, you know, like here, you know, uh, economic ability. And uh, he says we cannot practice Christianity with favoritism. It just does not work. We have to treat people like they're created in the image of God equally um, because that's the way God created us. Yeah. Amen. So it gives way to the latter part of James 2 where... Again, this is a huge call out of hypocrisy where faith and works is kind of the theme here of you, people saying, oh, I have faith, I have faith, and you're not backing it up. You're not living it out. And so James goes into a good bit of detail here talking about how ridiculous it is to say you trust God and follow Jesus without doing anything about it. Mm -hmm. That That is dead. Just like the body without the spirit is dead, faith without works is dead. And this section comes into fire a lot because of comparing it with Paul's letters where he talks a lot about we're not saved by works, we're saved by faith, we're saved by grace through faith. And they're writing to two different audiences and making two different points that are kind of like two sides of the same coin. And uh, these aren't contradictory points to what Paul is writing to his audiences because Paul is seeking to unify Jews and Gentiles and Jews who are huge on works of the Old Testament law and focused on that. So Paul is making a point that's absolutely true and James is making a point that's absolutely true and we need to seek to put these together that um, we're not justified by our works. No, we're not. And yet, in a sense, we are justified by our works because it's not faith alone. Mm -hmm. It's not the only thing that we do. We, that faith is accompanied by works. And without the works, the faith is dead. And so James is really clarifying that. And again, he's writing to an audience where the question is not so much the Jew-Gentile division, but it's just more hypocrisy. 
and people saying you know they're talking a good game but they're not backing it up and so it's helpful to see that those are just two different contexts uh, these letters are not to be pitted against each other but they're to be harmonized and viewed in their own context so i think that's helpful to see which as, as a side note there's a lot of people who say oh faith only faith only well the only time that faith only or faith alone comes up in the new testament is in james 224 where it says you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone so james here is really focusing on the practical living out of yes faith but not faith by itself it has to manifest itself in action mm-hmm. amen well said uses two really cool examples too with rahab and abraham um mm-hmm. c- kind of cool stories you can go back two and read. very different examples of the same kind of faith exactly yeah so chapter 3, kind of like what Stephen was saying, is we have to have works to back up what we say or have faith in. Um, not only do we need to have works, but the way we talk needs to line up with that as well. And so chapter 3 begins with an encouragement um, for those that want to become teachers. He'll say, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, they will, uh, we will incur a stricter judgment. I mean, people are going to be held to the standard by which they're teaching. And so... Not only that, when you're leading people, if you're saying the wrong things, you're not only leading yourself astray, but you're leading a group of people astray. So there is further scrutiny that the teacher is going to go through. And so naturally, this discussion leads into how to tame the tongue. And I love how James says that uh, in verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. He's really just trying to emphasize how most of our sin and most of the things that get us in trouble really comes back to what we say. And if a man can get that under control, he's a perfect man, <laughs> is, is the idea here. Yeah. And he goes through several different examples of how this is true. Just as the tongue is a small thing and directs the whole body, same is true of a horse with a bit in its mouth. Um, the same is true for a ship, although it's so big and it's tossed you know, here and there in the waves by the strong winds too, there's just a small rudder that is able to direct the whole ship. And the same is true with a forest that catches on fire. It starts with one little ember, one little flame, and the tongue is the same way. How many times have we said less than 10 words? And it just blew up right in front of our face. You know, it's just one little thing can set off this whole chain reaction. And so we have a need to tame the tongue. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with the, the beasts in verse 7. It's this restless creature that you have to tame like an animal. Yeah. Um, and at the end of verse 8, he describes it like a poison. You only need a little bit of poison <laughs> to do a lot of damage. Um, and even at the, at the end, he talks about uh, a spring, uh, fresh water versus salt water. He says you can't have both. It needs to be one uh, or the other. And, of course, we want it to be what's right, uh, blessing and cursing, not cursing. So James really focuses in, again, on against hypocrisy, but also on watching out that we don't sin with our words. Uh, it's so easy to stumble in what we say. And this gives way to the section at the end of chapter 3, and really that kind of goes into chapter 4, on wisdom. And he asks, who's wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Don't just say you're wise, but show that you're wise by acting 
with meekness. And so he contrasts uh, the wisdom from below uh, with the wisdom from above here. The wisdom from below includes jealousy, selfish ambition. Um, it's earthly, unspiritual, and even demonic. Um, but the wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And so this list of qualities in the book of James is kind of a famous one, and rightfully so. It's really helpful to contrast what do our words say about us? Where are we getting our wisdom from? Are we getting it from the world? Because selfish ambition and jealousy will get you places in the world. There's a sense in which it's wisdom, but it does not bear good fruit. Um, but the wisdom from above brings a harvest of righteousness. It brings good fruit. Um, so we really have to be honest with ourselves on what wisdom we're listening to and what wisdom we're putting into action in our life. So as we think about this church and him asking, you know, who among you is wise and understanding uh, that leads right into chapter 4 because he'll ask them a, a question in chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not see, receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So th this church that he's writing to, or th the people in mind that he's writing to, he's asking whenever you and the group of people you work with are having problems, you need to stop and ask yourself, why? Well, what is really at the root of those issues? And James' answer is really, really simple, sin. S sin is what is at the root of these conflicts and quarrels that this, these members are having. And we really got to learn how to humble ourselves. And that, that kind of is the whole theme and section of, of chapter 4 here, is will we rely on God's wisdom or are we going to rely on the world's? Where if we don't have something, we just take it for ourselves. Or are we going to rely on God when we don't have something and ask him for it and, and trust his timing of things? And he describes this desire uh, to, to rely on worldly wisdom as being friends of the world and enemies of God. And that is really startling writing um, to think about. Am I, a, am I an enemy of God or am I a friend of the world? Um, we need to think about that. Yes. And there's another, you know, like you say, one of those sections where James doesn't pull any punches. <laughs> He's very straightforward with his audience. And, and at the end of this, he, he really echoes the Sermon on the Mount, talking about not judging other people. Uh, you know, judge not, that you be not judged. And again, hypocritical judgment is what he has in mind here. Now listen, there's only one lawgiver. Uh, God's the judge. He's the one who's going to judge us at the last day. And who are, who are we to judge our neighbor? That's mm -hmm. not to say that we can't correct each other. Uh, there's always a context for these things. But uh, again, so interesting to see how many sections of James are just like straight out of the Sermon on the Mount. And so at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, uh, there's really two warnings that go together. I didn't see this for a, a long time. Both of them are introduced with, come now. And both of them are really directed at the rich. Um, the end of chapter 4 is about pride showing itself through planning that doesn't take God into account. Well, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go do that. 
I'm going to spend a year here, make a profit, go there, which is really the kind of thing that rich people are able to do and make plans like that. And he says, listen, you should say if the Lord wills, we'll do this or do that. Uh, we need to be very careful about just saying, oh, we're going to do this or we're going to do that like we're in charge and like we have the ability to, uh, you know, make plans and make them happen. Only the Lord, his plans are what going are going to stand. And we need to be humble, careful about how we talk even um, and always acknowledge, all right, no, this will happen if the Lord allows it to happen. And so uh, we need to watch our pride on that. And that gives way into chapter 5 where he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And he describes basically people who are hoarding resources, that their gold and silver have... uh, they're going to be rusted and all this, which is uh, kind of a funny image because they're called precious metals because they don't rust. But the idea is spiritually they will because you're not using them to help people. Um, and the rich here who are withholding wages from their workers as well, he talks about that. Uh, they're, they're crying out to God and God hears and God is going to come and judge. It's going to be a day of slaughter, he talks about. So... Um, this is a stern warning against uh, those who are rich and not using their riches to be a blessing to other people. Yeah. The last section of James, chapter 5, 7 through the end of the book here, it's kind of some miscellaneous exhortations, but are, are themed around the idea of patience and prayer. And he tells the brethren to be patient until the coming of the Lord. You can especially think of some brethren that are going through some suffering who are really anticipating and want the Lord Jesus to come back. And he says, brethren, we have to be patient for that. And man, there have been things going on in our country and around our our places now that make me want the coming of the Lord to come now. But we need to be patient. Just as a farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late uh, late rains, he says, you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. And so we got we got to be patient in those moments. And he uses examples, um, not only a farmer, but he talks about Job as an example of someone who endured and had patience. And the Lord was full of compassion and mercy in Job's case as well. And man, you you cannot read through the book of Job without thinking about the level of patience he had, not only with with God and with the unfortunate things that happened to him. But the patience he had with his friends as they were saying so many wrong things, things that just were not true. And Job was patient with them. And the Lord was compassionate and merciful with Job when he said wrong things, as well as with the friends when they said wrong things. God was patient in those moments. And so he points to Job as an example of, of that kind of endurance we need to have. Yeah, and the prophets as well uh, in verse 10. Uh, there's That could be multiplied in the Old Testament, looking yes. at all of the things that the prophets suffered. Um, I think especially about Jeremiah um, and some of the things he had to go through, but also Ezekiel and Isaiah. And yeah. It's amazing to think about what they endured. And then there's some things that were, again, you're like, yeah, you just copied that from Jesus. <laughs> Verse 12, he'll say, But of all, above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or within any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Jesus said that. Uh, that, that is very clear. Um, and if you're going to copy from anyone, Jesus is a good one to copy from. Right. And, of course, this is being written by the inspiration of God's Spirit. Yeah. And so uh, it's not surprising at all 
that uh, God's teaching comes through the mouth of Jesus, and it also comes through his spirit through, in this case, the pen of James, the brother of Jesus. And so at the end of James, he talks about, listen, whatever circumstance you're in, are you suffering? You should pray. If you're cheerful, you should sing. If you're sick, you should call for the elders, and they'll pray over you. And so he really focuses in on prayer here. And he says in verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And this is such a powerful thing to think about, that whether for physical illness or spiritual illness, we need to be praying for each other. We need to be confessing our sins to each other and bringing things out into the open so that we can be healed. He uses the example of Elijah as an example of the power of prayer. He prayed and it didn't rain for three years and six months. And he prays and the earth you know, gives rain again. So we see God working through the prayers of righteous people. And that ties into the closing statement of the book, which is kind of interesting. Most letters we've talked about have like this little conclusion section <laughs> and like greetings at the end. Say hi to so-and-so. And like James just like, Abruptly, he's like, all right, here's my last little thing. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The end. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it. that's it. No grace and peace. It's just like, boom. Um, but what a powerful way to end the book to talk about if we are active with God on our side, then we can be part of of the most important kind of rescue that there is Mm -hmm. and that is rescuing someone's soul from death and covering a multitude of sins of course god's the one forgiving it's his atonement it's the power of jesus that's doing that but we can be an instrument in his hands to be able to help someone turn around uh, to see, see that sin confessed to god to see that sin uh forgiven to see repentance happen yes and so we are called at the end of this book as brothers of James and of the these these people we're reading about, to take part in this. If you see your brother wandering, help him come back. And Paul in First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight will talk about that the work of the Lord is not done in vain. That that is, that is a work that is far more important than anything else we will do. And so, if you know of someone that's that's straying from the Lord or has strayed from the Lord, do everything you can to go get them back. Uh, turn turn them back to the Lord, save his soul from the death that is to come. So a beautiful reminder for us here at the end of the book. Lord willing, next week we're going to get into the book of 1 Peter. Um, it's kind of interesting. I was just thinking about this, how James writes to the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad, and Peter's going to write to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, and, and so forth. And so uh, we're switching again to a different writer, Peter, to another scattered group of people. So Lord willing, we'll dig into that next week. Yeah. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, we'd love it if you'd leave us a a rating or a review, subscribe so you can get more episodes. Um, If you're interested in studying the Bible with us, we'd love to hear from you, whether you want to study online or in person, locally or somewhere else, 717-585-0949 or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com or for more information on group studies and worship, check out capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.